Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of December 29th, 2014. This week's show is the special year-end hang-up call-in show. On this year's show, we're going to answer questions about our favorite sports announcers, whether college athletes are kids, if football would be safer without helmets, and a whole lot more, including some bonus questions for our Slate Plus members. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hola, Stefan. Hola, Josh. And with us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca, who just fixed a problem in the New York studio. He is the troubleshooter of today's episode. It's Fatsis and the Troubleshooter, and whatever you want to call me, Mike. You ready for the theme song this, this year? I'm ready. Phone in, cause we're ready to go phone in, though our readiness is clearly not so phone in. That has a double meaning, you know, phone in. It's a podcast, not radio. Phone in. Phone in. We're phoning it in. 
Phone it in with the troubleshooter, Fatsis. Phone in! And the kid. And the kid. <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm fine with being the kid. Blinky and Falute. <laughs> Blinky and Falute. Blinky and Falute. So, and from New York, the troubleshooter. So we determined before we started rolling tape that I'm the only person involved in this podcast who cannot wink with both eyes. And I'm now very curious how prevalent that is. Can everyone in the world except me wink with both eyes? No. Yahoo Answers reveals that there is someone who says, when I was little, I couldn't wink with my right eye either, but my mother could. Stupid as it sounds, I started practicing, and now I could wink with both eyes. So you're just lazy. He's <laughs> got a lazy eye. I'm trying to practice now. I'll be practicing during the show. It's very distracting. <laughs> very uncomfortable to watch. Just Someone says, I, can wink. I could wink on my left, but I can't wink on my right. I'm only 16 and not an optician or anything, but that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 16 and I'm an optician. Yeah, yeah. I'm an ophthalmologist and 15, but I'm not an optician. Maybe we should go to the, uh, go to the callers. I think we're already going off the rails. Phone in. Phone in. Hey guys, it's David Kluger from Hoboken. I was just curious who your favorite uh, broadcasters were, sports broadcasters of the year. I don't know why it would change year to year, I guess, but who your favorites were and who your least favorites are and uh, why. I like Al Michaels. Yeah, everyone likes Al Michaels. I like almost all baseball announcers who are under age 40. It just seems like this generational split. And after you've been there hanging on for a while, they let you do the game because, you know, you evoke the Minnesota Twins, even if you're not smart. But the Houston Astros have a, a good set of announcers who are really up on the stats. And as the for Houston lo- Astros, you're I mean, watching Astros watching games? Astros baseball? Sure, I know. Astros, I know baseball. Astros baseball. We're under 40, and we know the stats on the Astros. <laughs> Listen, Blinky. Um, <laughs> and as far as guys I don't like, definitely Gruden and... Uh, Who's the guy who drove the lions into the ground? Matt Millen. <laughs> yeah, that guy stinks. <laughs> I like the, how that was just a big subtweet of Vin Scully. It's like, I don't really like the older announcers. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, no. Yeah, Vince. See, I <laughs> want to be interesting. You can't even say you like Vin Scully. That guy's the best. Remains the best. So I'll, I'll focus on college uh, sports. And there's a huge supply issue because there are so many games, especially on college football Saturdays that by the time you get down to like the 10th or 20th best game, there's just not enough announcers to, you know, to match up with all of the games that are on TV now, like since literally every game is on television. But I think that Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreet are really good. It's just shocking how many times you'll watch a college football game where the announcers seem unprepared, where they don't know the, how to pronounce the names of the players as I belabor almost uh, every week. And they don't, beyond that, they just don't give you any particular insight into how a particular team operates, what they're calling on defense, what they're calling on offense, things that you wouldn't know if you actually watch that team. But those guys actually do the preparation. They know the players. Um, They probably have, like, you know, connections with the coaches since they're the top ESPN team. So they probably get insights that other guys don't. But there's just a level of professionalism on their broadcast that is kind of too rare in college football, I think. I'm going to mount a small, tiny defense of Gruden. 
because I think Gruden epitomizes the NFL, and I think it's amusing to watch someone who believes so deeply in the religion of the National Football League. They are, they, it's a perfect complement for what the NFL thinks itself to be. So I get, I enjoy listening to Gruden sort of go off. Is that because of what he talks about or how he talks or how would you I think it's a combination. It's a, how he talks. It's the bombast and the excitement and this, this overstimulation. And at the same time, it's the military tone of the words that are coming out of his mouth, that there's the, this belief that you know the NFL represents so much more organically on the field. What it is is this serious pitched battle between these two arch enemies. He does, know, he like, does know what he's talking about, though. Yeah, but everything fits into his pre-designed or his pre-conceived notions. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to change according to the actual circumstances of the game. And it's shtick. I really don't think anyone has that personality as a real personality, the personality he's putting on. Right, and I shtick, hope, I hope sh- not. Shtick is, <laughs> shtick is easy to hate, but I think in Gruden's case, it's a stick that you can sort of smile at. I don't think Gruden, Gruden doesn't annoy me the way that other announcers who have shtick annoy me. Well, he seems like the successor to John Madden, at least that's how he perceives himself. It's probably how ESPN perceives him, and they're happy with him because they just signed him to a big extension. And I think that I haven't heard a huge backlash. Maybe there is one, but it's not, he's not like somebody who's widely loathed. But did you feel like Madden was shtick, Mike, or was that more authentic? Or was he just better at doing the shtick? Yeah, and he he definitely seemed to work with the game, and he was such an innovator. You know, it's like saying, "Well, I've heard that production technique that they used on Sergeant Pepper." Well, since since Madden was the first one who was really ever talking about linemen and bringing catchphrases and joy to it, I think Madden was great. All right, let's take another call. Hi, hang up, guys. Uh, my name is Jeannie Hay, and I'm from Saco, Maine, and I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. I'm also a longtime subscriber of Sports Illustrated, and my question is, how does that uh, flagship magazine get away with such terrible coverage of women's sports? I've done a little analysis of what it takes to get on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a woman, and the answer is you either have to be scantily clad or naked or in a very large group photo. So I'd appreciate your thoughts on that. Thanks. Jeannie, I would have to say that is a fair observation. Our colleague Amanda Hess did some research earlier this year about Monet Davis, the little leaguer um, who was on the cover of SI. And Amanda discovered that SI had published 73 covers to that point, and Davis was the sixth female athlete to be on the cover. And if you looked at Sports Illustrated's website, there were just cheerleaders, models in swimsuits, a model getting an ice bucket dumped over her head. So this is really a uh, fair representation of what Sports Illustrated is doing. And I found a bunch of articles, uh, The Atlantic, Fusion did one, Huffington Post, about this phenomenon. So it's been widely recognized. It's not like SI has not been criticized for this. And one interesting thing that I found in The Atlantic story, Stefan, is that kind of pre-Title IX, there were probably more women on Sports Illustrated's cover because back in the day, they would have just like really random, weird stuff like they they had um you know fencing horseback riding hunting rock climbing they have a lot of ski fashion stuff too <laughs> no they did like they fish did. fishing i don't know if women were ever on a fishing cover but yes ski fishing there was a lot of ski, ski fish. fishing on the cover so si has actually gotten more mainstream and more into like the major 
big spectator sports, I think, in recent years. And there was a magazine, Sports Illustrated Women, that existed um, for a couple years, 2000 to 2002. Our own Julia Turner worked there, actually. It was shuttered. It was not a big financial success. You know, Time Inc. was like, people aren't buying this magazine. So they might argue that there's a commercial imperative here. Um, so, Stefan, what do you think? Does Is there actually a market opportunity for SI to feature more women, or should they do it because it's just the right thing to do? Well, I think that, that everything that goes on the cover is governed by commercial exigencies. So I think that, I mean, I think the one thing that we didn't mention is that when a woman athlete is put on the cover of SI, it's usually a tennis player. I mean, Serena's been on the cover multiple times. I mean, I think you could go back to the 70s and 80s and, and 90s and sort of chart the number of women tennis players Chrissy that have been on the Martina. cover. Chrissy Martina. Chrissy Martina, Celis. I mean, they're, they're definitely when a woman excels in tennis, she does make the cover. And I think that's a simple marketing decision. And the decision is that people will buy the magazine on the newsstand because an athlete that they recognize is on the cover. And sadly, the the economic calculus that SI makes and other magazines make is that people won't buy a magazine if a woman athlete is on the cover from another sport, you know, unless, again, it's someone that is visually appealing, unless it's someone like Lindsey Vaughn, who I think has been on the cover. But that being said, it's not like when you open the magazine, Mike, they have like amazing coverage of women's sports and it's just like men are on the cover, but inside it's like a rich tapestry of all, all genders competing in all sports. But this is, it's entirely commercially driven. And in fact, I think their instincts, and I think ESPN's instincts are to cover women's sports disproportionate to audience interest. And there are a few reasons for that. Maybe you could argue that it's a smart business move because you're laying the foundations with younger viewers. And there's a lot of evidence that women, because of Title IX, are now maybe going to be into sports more than they ever were. Also, the way that sports media has normally been constructed might be particularly off-putting to women. So it's not all altruism. But I think that, especially newsrooms who, they don't really cover the WNBA that much. But, you know, I I think that they do feel an obligation to cover the women's uh, basketball tournament because of issues of gender equality, apart from issues of, you know, how much your readers are interested in. And I know in NPR we were, it wasn't just that we were sensitive to the criticism. People really felt that if you cover men, you should cover women. But you know what? The amount of interest in the women is so minuscule. And NPR is one thing. It's not a commercial enterprise. But Sports Illustrated definitely is. Putting women on the cover is mostly symbolic. And if we had two more cover stories about famous women athletes that were written in the way that cover stories about men athletes are written with that how how good would that be i would just rather have one or two really well thought out articles about athletes or something like we're not talking about espn the magazine but you know amanda did her reporting on the situation with cheerleaders for espn magazine so a few more actual meaty articles on the inside would do a lot more than a couple of puff pieces about women on the outside. Yeah, I'd agree. And I haven't actually seen that research, and I would like to see it. But I get the sense that the articles that SI does, like the big bonus pieces, you know, we talked about Gary Smith. There are a couple that he did that come to mind, like Jamila Weidman, uh, the Stanford basketball player he wrote one about, and Pat Summit, the Tennessee basketball coach. But I don't get the sense that, that SI covers women out of proportion in stories where it doesn't particularly matter how famous the athlete is. One's about like, you know, human interest stories, high school athletes, um, the kind of like touching human interest type stuff. 
like even in those, I feel like it's disproportionately dudes that are written about. So you know, I would I would like to see more equity there. And you're right, it would yeah be like better high- and not just symbolic. You mean like articles about high school athletes where it's not that this kid's going to be the next pro, but right, it's some just like an interesting thing, story. Some touching thing that happened where a team triumphed over whatever. Yeah, you're right. That is more of a men's team. And we know that women are participating in most of the sports, take away football, at the same levels of men. Well, and with ESPN, there's the question of whether their effort to cover some women's sports constitutes ghettoizing of women's sports. There's ESPNW. And that's exactly what I was going to just say. And And is that... Is that a place where coverage of women's sports should go? Does that make more sense? Or is it a token effort by ESPN? Or should we not be critical at all of any effort to increase coverage of women's sports? And I would fall into that camp. I mean, it's it's great that ESPN has created a site dedicated toward women's sports, and people who want to read about it can go there. And as long as those stories, when they merit broad coverage get the broad coverage as long as it's not being completely ghettoized and only the people that know to go there to find coverage that they're interested in will go there. All right. We're going to go from Hoboken to Maine to L.A. That's the cool thing about this uh, Colin show is that we really are getting spanning uh, the world. We're spanning the globe. So long as your globe only includes the U.S. That's not true. We'll be getting to some calls from other parts of the globe. It reminds me of that Bugs Bunny cartoon where he finds the penguin and decides to take him back home. This is the one with the Humphrey Bogart character asking, mm-hmm. would you help a fellow American who's down on his luck? And the boat, the tramp steamer, first goes to the South Pole and then goes to Hoboken. <laughs> All right. We just were in Hoboken. Let's go to L.A. Hey, Josh, Stephan, and Mike. This is William Brazington from Los Angeles, California. And I'm curious, what was your greatest achievement in sports Personally, as for me, I hit a walk-off grand slam and kickball the last day of junior high. Uh, that's about it for me. So I was just wondering what you guys did. Thanks. Uh, I remember when I was in first grade and I was put in at shortstop, even though I was not an infielder, and there was a very high pop fly, which think about first grade. That means that thing is dropping in. That, that high pop flies basically, given the distance of the bases, means you're on second before it lands. Anyway, I caught it. I somehow caught it, and I can't believe I caught it. I remember just sticking my glove up. I mean, as I recall, sticking it up blindly over my head, and it plopped into my glove, and I couldn't quite believe that. Second one was was football. <laughs> they were, this was seventh grade, and uh, future NFL quarterback Jay Fiedler was scrambling. You know, he wound up setting the record in New York State pentathlon, so the guy had wheels. Dartmouth yeah, he had split, but before then he was playing, we were playing Pop Warner against each other, and he was diving towards the end zone, and I uh, put the lick on him that kept him from entering the end zone, and you'll be happy to hear, not giving him any brain damage in the process, <laughs> Steph, and he did wind up getting like an 800 on his math SATs afterwards. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Stefan, what do you have for us? All right, Pelham Pelicans, senior year of high school, we're 0-6-1 in soccer, we're playing Ardsley 6-0-1. It's tied 2-2. I think we came back from 2 nothing down in the second half. Game is winding down. Chris Croton takes the free kick. The rebound comes out to a young fullback, actually. But it was end of a the game. We were Stephanus. all up there. Fatsis whipped the ball into the goal from eight yards out. The standard star reported the next day. Last play of the game. We all went nuts. But I think... In Pesca, I think the way you approach it is like, look, our greatest athletic achievements are, are in our childhoods because that's 
They're so vivid. I mean, I could say, oh, yeah, I kicked a field goal in Ford Field during warm-ups for the Broncos, but whatever. We could all say that. We could all say that. Um, so you'd think that would be more memorable, but this is what's really memorable for me. We're playing stickball at my elementary school, Prospect Hill, probably sixth grade. And stickball, we wrap the tennis ball in paper and then light it on fire to burn the fuzz off because then it breaks more. So you get a much better break on your curveball. Anyway, I'm playing one-on-one against Robbie Smith whose nickname was Kojak because he used to get a short haircut in the summer. <laughs> My mom was waiting in the car at the curb to pick me up. We've gone into extra innings, Kojak and I. I go ahead 9-8 in the top of the inning. No outs, man on first in the bottom. You get two outs per side. Kojak hits a hard ground ball to my right. I snag it for the first out and leap Jeter-like and throw it back toward home. If the ball goes in the box, it's a double play. It ricochets off of Kojak's plastic replica Major League Baseball helmet into the box. I go crazy, and I run into the car. Giving him brain damage. (laughs) (laughs) I love how we're all so self-centered that asked to give us a single achievement. We each are going to list two. Um, (laughs) I had a grand slam when I was seven as like a walk-off in the last game of the Little League season. And then, so that was that was great, exciting, very vivid, as Stefan said. And I wanted to give like a very pathetic greatest mm-hmm. sports achievement. So I interviewed uh, Josh Keefe, the worst high school quarterback ever. We had it on the show. And he talked about how he had his two great moments in high school football were both complete flukes that led to him being named the high school starter and losing 21 games in a row like he overthrew a guy and then another of his receivers just coincidentally happened to be running behind him and he caught it for like a 70 yard uh, touchdown so my version of that is in eighth grade and baseball practice i made a couple of like really amazing plays in practice like like pesca like the really high pop fly that i caught with like my back to the (laughs) infield i made like a a stab deep in the hole and threw a guy out at first base. So I was like named the start. The, I remember the coach being like, we've found our shortstop. And then I like sucked. <laughs> then I like sucked the rest of the year. And this was also like the B team. So that's like several like layers of pathetic sediment piled one on top of the other. All right. Let's take another call. Hi, this is Johnny from Illinois. I've been having trouble uh, sleeping at night. What's the best sport for me to start following in the middle of the night? So it seems like you could take this in two ways. One way is what's the most soporific sport, the one that is the best sleep aid? And the other is what sport is likely to be on and live and exciting in the middle of the night? And so the answers are quite at odds with each other. But I'd go with Australian rules football. As long as it's like 1986 on ESPN. Yeah, or you get, you know, deep, deep cable. Somehow, for some reason, you mispaid your bill and you got every cable station. But Australian Rules Football is not bad. It's pretty good. If it were in America, it would be quite popular. I think it would be more popular than rugby because it's a little closer to football. And the way the the referees signal is also really cool. I was thinking in the same general category because um, back in the day when ESPN used to feature weird sports in the middle of the night, it felt more kind of strange and dreamlike if you happen to be up and you caught just something that you hadn't ever seen before. And now it's going to be some like eighth airing of Sports Center or like a replay of a game that you might have already seen or know the score of. So I feel like there's been a little bit there's been a little bit of a loss there. It's just like Sports Illustrated getting more mainstream. But the one that I was going to mention was World's Strongest Man. I would 
I'd like to uh, talk at greater length someday about my obsession with World's Strongest Man. But that's something where if you like are up at two in the morning, you're like, oh, there's a, there's another half hour episode. Then before you know it, it's like the break of dawn. And, uh, you know, you've watched Reagan Vagadol from the Faroe Islands, you know, lift a, an atlas stone over his head. And then you're like marveling at Herod Badenhorst and the deadlift. They're all these just like weird looking people. They're like British accents. It feels like a dream. You're not sure if you're awake or not. And you're not sure when this was recorded or why or by whom, but then you like uh, you you feel like you've you've been in the greatest possible dream state, Stefan. Another Faroe Islands reference on Hang Up and Listen. I was going to say exciting. like when you mentioned Faroe Islands the other the other day, I was like, wonder if he's going to get to Reagan Vagadol, the, the cr- great strong man of the Faroe Islands. <laughs> the, the common thread here, of course, is that when you're up in the middle of the night trying to find a sporting event on television. The crucial aspect is that it not be something that you're familiar with and therefore right. that it take you to some other part of the world. So you can either pretend that, oh, this is happening live in another part of the world because they're awake. It's not four in the morning or that I want to be transported from my mundane quotidian state and be elsewhere. I'm already elsewhere because I'm awake at three in the morning. I might as well be physically elsewhere. The uh, I think the demarcation points for World's Strongest Man is was Bill Kazmaier an announcer or a participant? That's that became a before Bill and after Bill. And then were we in the uh, Zdrunas Saviakis era or were we in the uh, Marazus Podzinowski era? Because they kind of flip flop. They went a little Agassi Sampras on us. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the ones that were like way back in the day with like Bruce Wilhelm. When, yeah. when Franco Colombo's uh, leg snapped in the refrigerator yeah. race, we all we all and remember where we were when we saw that. Yeah, you know, uh, Bill Kazmaier once told me that in the first year of American, of, you uh, name world, dropper, casual, yeah. casual Kaz. Kaz, Kaz, Kaz told me that uh, in the first year they weren't even told what the events would be; they were just told to quote show up strong. <laughs> 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 Have I ever talked about the uh, Austrian? Dude, I think I must have mentioned this before, but I'll I'll mention it again. The guy Manfred Herbel, who had the huge arms, who had my favorite quote ever, which is, my only problem is the lactic acid buildup in my huge muscles. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I always like to mention that. Uh, favorite World Strongest Man's quotes. Mike, can we do like a limited run World Strongest Man podcast? I'd like to. All yeah. right. Uh, you know, that was 2015. My- for my fir- my first job, I was identified as my favorite show, The World's Strongest Man, because it is the only show where they 100% deliver on the promise of the title. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to- back to California. Hi, gentlemen. Uh, this is Chris Albrecht from the Bay Area. Just wondering, with the holidays coming up, there's lots of time for binge-watching TV. Netflix has a ton of the 30, 30, 30 for 30 documentaries, and wondering if you had any recommendations or other sports documentary re- uh, recommendations. Thanks so much. Well, I think that's obvious. From me, it's the Hawk Films Festival. Uh, <laughs> box set, John Hawk's documentaries, Lost Son of Havana, about Luis Disclosure, Stefan and John are BFFs. BFFs, college roommates. Uh, Best That Never Was, Marcus Dupree, Off the Res, Shoney Schimmel, Unguarded, Chris Heron. You can even go on to ESPN, Grantland, and watch those short Steve Nash and Landon Donovan. It would be really awkward if, if Hawk's films were really shitty, but since they're, since they're awesome then uh, yeah. there's no conflict, yeah. no conflict, no conflict of interest. Whatsoever. What do you think no. the best is? What is the best? The best of the best? I, I know what my favorite is. I like the best that never was. That's mine too. The and I think that most film. people would say the Cuban ones were the best because they had more scope maybe, but I, I just love the best that never was. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the one Marcus Dupree played at Oklahoma, was a Mississippi high school legend. And John found high school footage that really looks like the, like, the cliche is what, like, man, man among boys? It's like man, man, man among, among fetuses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and remember how he described how important was finding the footage to the film? What he likened it to? No, I forget. Jaws. <laughs> the, the film of the shark in Jaws. Right. It would be a much less good film without film of the shark. I wrote Pumping Iron Dan. I don't want to get like uh, typecast as like the strong the strong man guy, but that is a very amusing. You're often typecast as a strong man. Yeah, I am very puny. I'm obviously obviously compensating for something, um, but that is a very amusing uh, movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno, etc. I also wrote down uh, When We Were Kings. Fantastic. The, that was a really good one. That's yeah. great. Yeah, I think I, th- I mean Ali, George Foreman, Rumble in the Jungle. Just like I made my point with Sergeant Pepper and Madden, I think Hoop Dreams is a little in that category. I mean, it doesn't seem as great now. And if I showed it to someone who, even if I intellectually explained, this was the first of its kind. But I remember literally being in the theater for Hoop Dreams. And this was, you know, two years, maybe two or three years after it happened. And when I forgot who it was, let's say it was AG, who missed a critical foul shot, the whole theater gasping. It's like, this happened I three years that. That ago. Was Gates, that was Gates who missed. Who that was missed Gates, yeah, yeah, William Gates. And so that's a good one. You know what else was a great one? I thought that Two Escobars was maybe among the best 30 for 30, but really fun 30 for 30 was Winning Time, which was the Reggie Miller one. I enjoyed that as a Knicks fan. I also wrote down uh, the Crash Reel, which we talked about mm-hmm. on the show, the Kevin Pierce one, the snowboarder who um, had the traumatic brain injury. That might have been, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but in the past couple of years out of ones we talked on the show, that one really stands out. Also, Beyond the Mat, the pro wrestling documentary, which features- Oh, that was so good. If you grew up with those guys, <laughs> those characters, Jake the Snake, yeah. That Murder- features my favorite human being alive. Who's not a world's strongest man competitor. Yes, mankind, Mick Foley. Go ahead, Stefan. Uh, Murder Ball about the uh, U.S. wheelchair rugby- Team, excellent. Once in a Lifetime about the Cosmos, another excellent documentary. Murder Ball is so good. That was done by my friend Dana Adam Shapiro, who's had a really eclectic career and has written novels. And he, his last big thing was a book about just interviewing people who were divorced. Murder Ball is so good. It's really uh, nice that like all of these we mentioned, everybody's jumping in and being like, that was so good. So great. <laughs> yeah. So you can tell that we, uh, we highly recommend these. All right, let's go to a call from Washington, D.C. Hello, D.C. Hi, this is Elliot Powers from Washington, D.C. And I have a philosophical question about fandom. Would you rather be a fan of a team who, over a 10-year span, wins a championship once, but in other years is mostly dreadful and has no roster or coaching consistency? Or would you rather be a fan of a team that, over a 10-year span, never wins a championship, but consistently makes the playoffs and has a consistent roster and one coach. Another way of asking this question is, is consistent winning and team loyalty enough as a fan, or would you trade it all from one fleeting period of glory? Thanks. This is a question that Bill Simmons probably would have answered in 2002. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it's sort of <laughs> like the r- rules it? of it's fandom. Oh, well, okay. he doesn't write those rules of <laughs> fandom columns anymore. No, or did we stop reading them? Or maybe it's possible <laughs> that we stopped reading them. That is true, too. Um, I think the answer is clear. 
stick with your team. You want consistency. You want to be, you want the possibility every year. Sports are about hope. Sports are about believing that your team has a chance year in and year out. And if you're a fan of that kind of a franchise, how can you go wrong? I mean, it's also accepting that playoffs pretty much in any sport are a crapshoot. So if you are on the verge every year, you're qu- you're consistent every year, whether that means you're a Patriots fan or a Braves fan or a San Antonio Spurs fan, you know that the product that you're going to watch when you turn on your cable television box is going to be one that will that you will enjoy watching. It will be an experience that you can take pleasure in. And being a fan is about taking pleasure. But the thing is, to take the perennially great team that frequently disappoints, if it's the Braves, they did win a World Series. So it's a little different with the Buffalo Bills. That's it. Think about being a Patriot fan. All right, strip away all the negative associations you have with Mm -hmm. being a Patriot fan. It's great to be a Patriot fan, even if they haven't won in, you know, quite a while for them, because you're so interested. Maybe football's different. You always get interested in every game. I was thinking about this as uh, the Knicks and the Nets were playing one night, and I couldn't have less interest. And, like, I wish my kids, I don't wish, but it would be nice if there was some compelling reason to watch either of these horrid teams. And, you know, a Cavs fan, all right, let's not take that, a Spurs fan, they win a team that is perennially an Oklahoma City Thunder fan, like actually a bona fide Thunder fan, someone living in Oklahoma City. They may never win a championship, but just caring about every game gives you so much enjoyment that you don't realize when they're finally eliminated from the playoffs. And the team that has the quixotic, meteoric rise for one year, that might be satisfying, but if you could actually gauge day-in, day-out satisfaction, you'll get more sustained long-term happiness out of the really good team that doesn't win it in the end versus the surprise where they come from, Florida Marlins-type team that does wind up I think that's scientifically proven. There have been studies. <laughs> yeah, no, People live longer if they're fans of teams that are consistent. Well, if you're going to take the worst example of a team that's like consistently pretty good to like think about like what is the floor of what this fandom would be like i would put the atlanta hawks there because they're a team that always makes the playoffs but unlike the thunder they've never really had a a kevin durant or russell westbrook a guy who just like brings the absolute pleasure of watching a superstar since dominique wilkins and so would you like to be a fan of that team where you kind of know going into the year that this team is not going to win the NBA title, but they're going to win more than half of their games. There seems to be kind of a malaise that develops among fan bases. And to some extent, the Braves too, like where they don't even sell out the playoff games where people just get bored with being consistently pretty good. I think that I I don't think the, the Hawks are the floor because I think that at no point was it plausible that they would win a championship. And that's what you want to be, the fan of the team that could win the championship. And in basketball, that surprise, shocking team like the Hawks doesn't do it. Maybe the Jacksonville Jaguars in their first year, maybe that would be an example. I don't think the Hawks are really that fair. I think it's a team, I think the Thunder's fairer, a team that really could do it. That hypothetical to this hypothetical question was unfair. How dare you? I think what also would help you these days is knowing that your front office is smart and is applying modern analytical techniques toward making your team better. I think that gives the, the intelligent fan today something else to feel sort of good about and to also pay attention to. All right, let's go to uh, our next question. Hi, this is Matthew from New York City. My question is, which team and player 
have each of you been most passionate about in your life in terms of loving as a fan? I want to dial into your sports fan passion, not your monocled, astute observer. So who have you loved the most, team and player, and why? All right. I have removed my monocle, although I do have another monocle on below that. So I'm now only wearing one monocle. Josh needs two monocles because he can't blink. Right. Is it in the I eye? I can't wink with or? my right eye. I I'm can sorry, blink. blink. You can't wink. Did I say blink? You said blink. <laughs> Fortunately, if Josh couldn't blink, that would be frightening. Yeah. So there are a lot of LSU football players that I've really liked. Kevin Falk, your honey badgers. Um, but I'm going to talk about the 2006 LSU basketball team because that felt like a little bit more of like a personal thing. LSU basketball is not hugely popular, but I follow it pretty closely. So it's like the indie band that I really like um, because I'm just precious and annoying that way. Um, The 2006 team was just really fun. It was the classic example of a bunch of guys that play really well together. And the starting five was all from Louisiana and a bunch of guys who are really fun for different reasons. There's Big Baby Davis, what else do you need to say about Big Baby Davis? Tyrus Thomas, who was like, you know, dunking and blocking shots every every game. Garrett Temple, who is a great defensive player who's now in the NBA. Tasman Mitchell and Daryl Mitchell. Both of their last names are Mitchell. That's pretty fun. Oh, my God. Crazy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they would call them the Mitchells. Oh. <laughs> what fun characters. Beat Duke in the Sweet 16 with Garrett Temple holding J.J. Redick to three for 18 shooting. Big Baby Davis, when they went to the Final Four, said that we've got tape worms in our bellies. We're still hungry. I would recommend that you not Google the phrase Big Baby Tapeworm, as <laughs> as I did to try to get that quote before the show. Uh, I went to Turkey on a uh, vacation, and I saw Daryl Mitchell play a basketball game in Turkey. That's like kind of like stalker level. I feel like that's passion. Daryl Mitchell, while in Turkey, felt that he was stalking himself. <laughs> that was the only reason that he was there. He played for Besiktas. Stefan, who are you uh, passionate about? I'm going to go back to childhood and rekindle my passion for Bobby Mercer. And again, this is sort of like the, your best memory of doing something on a, on a sporting field. It's disproportionate to reality. It's irrational. But it also sort of helped shape you for any number of years. I mean, I was a New York Yankees fan growing up, and I was lucky enough to watch the Yankees and be of sort of of critical age in 76, 77, and 78 when they got really good. Um, and during that time, Bobby Mercer, before that time, actually, when I was, when the Yankees were really bad, Bobby Mercer was the player I latched onto and whose batting stance I imitated. And I actually wrote a, an essay about Mercer for a book called Top of the Order, 25 Writers Pick Their Favorite Baseball Players of All Time. And I just Googled it to try to, to get the title for it. And I typed in Mercer Fatsis and Google said, did you mean murder fetus? <laughs> I did not mean murder fetus. I meant Mercer Fatsis. NSA, he did not mean murder fetus. He was not also searching for chloroform. He was, what would he have been searching for that where Google would suggest chloroform? Clyde, <laughs> Clyde Frazier? I don't know. Hmm. Go ahead, Stefan. Um, I don't know that I had much to add. I mean, it's sort of, it's again, it's, it's, for me, it's like, what is memory? What is nostalgia? What feels like it was important? 
and sort of life-shaping when I was a kid. And watching Bobby Mercer in 1979 on a bad Yankees team hit a home run and, and set up the winning run the day after Thurman Munson died and watching that on national television with Howard Cosell doing the play-by-play. I mean, that's a moment that I, I won't forget. And that's the sort of passionate moment from childhood sports watching that, that sticks with me. So mine is uh, St. John's mid-80s cover of Sport Magazine with Carnes uh, Seca and John Thompson kind of staring at each other. That was a good cover. But, yeah. And what was great about it for me was my father went to St. John's, the local arena, Alumni Hall then, now it's Carnesecca Arena, what is in Utopia, Queens. We would go to the games. We would eat at the Sly Fox beforehand. That was the first time I ever saw someone order two Cokes with dinner. That was my Uncle Tony. I just couldn't believe that that could actually happen. Also, Uncle I think Tony. First, I love Uncle Tony yeah, already. First place I ever uh, had garlic bread with melted cheese. So how could I not love St. John's? <laughs> but the, in his junior year, Mullen scored 25 <laughs> points a game. And then his senior year... It was down to 20, but that's only because the whole team was so much better. And that debate and the Big East was fantastic. And I was a big basketball football fan for sure. And it's never gotten there again. And the funny thing is I have met Chris Mullen in real life. I don't know if you've met Mercer, but it wasn't any different from, I don't know, maybe because I'm not a jaded sports person, but let's be professional. Hey, I'm a huge fan. You know, that's what I said. I think I'd probably go crazier with uh, Springsteen, although probably not. I don't know. But... That was it. And then making it to the uh, national semifinals, the final four, not getting over the Georgetown hump. Finally, St. John's really being important. Big East really being important. Chris Mullen. God, if they I, I go back and sometimes watch some footage on YouTube and they would run set plays to free him up from 21. It was amazing. Uh, so your favorite athlete growing up was garlic bread. Yeah, <laughs> my Uncle Tony. <laughs> Uncle yes. Tony was my Uncle Tony drinking two Cokes with dinner. That is an athletic feat. Okay, we are back to New Jersey for our next question. Hi, guys. My name is Kathy Dayton. I live in Branchburg, New Jersey, and I love listening every week. Back in January, the 26th edition of the New York Times this past year, there was an article about college coaches recruiting female soccer players from middle school and basically getting letters of intent before these girls even got into high school. And... As a mother with young children, not that I think they're going to be college superstars, but you hear all of the, um, you know, you should get your kids to diversify and not specialize, and and it just all seems incredibly crazy. So especially um, Stefan, since I know he's involved with girls soccer, I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on all of this, and is there any way to get off the crazy college sports ride in general? Thank you very much. Well, you don't hear people saying that kids should diversify as much as people used to say kids should diversify and play two or three sports in high school uh, or before high school. So the mentality of my kid's going to get a scholarship does exist. But the reality is that for all of the conversation about that, it's limited to a small number of athletes who are that good at a young age. Um, And if you're that good at a young age and you're playing on some elite team and you're playing virtually year round, yeah, you've got to step in on as a parent and take breaks and make sure your kid doesn't burn out or physically harm herself. But at the same time, you know, this is about colleges. It's not necessarily about your kid. It's not necessarily about the travel team in New Jersey. It's about college coaches trying to out-recruit and out-maneuver one another. 
I had lunch with Anson Dorrance, the head coach of North Carolina, the women's soccer team who's won like 21 national championships since the mid-1980s. Dorrance said, I don't like doing this, but people are doing it, and that is impacting my ability to recruit players because other schools are going out and offering scholarships to 8th graders and ninth graders and 10th graders, and we're worse for it. So how do I compete at this point? I don't like doing it, but I'm going to try. He said that he doesn't do it a lot. And the reason he doesn't do it a lot is because you can't forecast whether an eighth or a ninth grader is going to be as good an athlete as she is then when she gets to college. So it's, it's a screwed up system. Well, you got to take some responsibility, I think, if you're like sure. the, the big dog, like Anson Dorrance, like he could lead rather than follow in that well, and he, do, and he doesn't do it. He said the times that he has done it, he's gotten burned because the girl that they signed in ninth grade ends up not being good enough to compete at that level when she's a freshman in college. Aren't most of those well-hyped signings of eighth graders, I'm speaking mostly of college football, aren't those not binding? And when you investigate right. it, the school that signs them is rarely the school that the kid goes it's to. kind of a publicity stunt on all yeah. sides. But I think in the lesser sports, it's not as much of a publicity stunt because when the fingers are, are sort of planted into the family's life in eighth, ninth grade, you know, the commitment may not be on paper yet because it's, it's not permitted, but it's a real one that affects decision making two or three years hence. Well, I would argue against what you're saying about not being able to identify players in eighth and ninth grade. It makes us uncomfortable. But if you think about certain sports, Olympic sports or tennis or golf or whatever, talent often does show by the time somebody's in eighth grade or ninth grade um, that you do know that obviously, no matter when you're looking at talent, whether it's in college or high school, not every player is going to turn out to be a superstar is or is going to be as good against competition when everyone gets bigger or stronger. But you can tell when somebody mm-hmm. separates from the pack. And it makes us uncomfortable because, um, you know, these are just kids and we're putting them into these high pressure situations. And is that fair to them? But that's just reality that like once kids hit puberty, then you're going to be able to tell like this person could be in the Olympics for team handball or whatever other sport that Stefan cares about. So it makes us feel like something has gone wrong, but this is what happens in every country around the world. In most other countries, in a more systematized, less humane kind of way, and just given the way that human biology works, that's just like around the time when you know you start to tell who's good. Let me throw a hypothetical at you guys. Let's say you're a coach. Well, we'll try two different sports. Coach of women's so- girls soccer, coach of football. And I give you this choice. You could recruit against everyone else, you know, try to get the best guys, ask the jun- high school juniors, whatever. Or you could give out a maximum number of scholarships to any eighth grader you want. Which Under which scenario do you think you'd get the better team? And they'd have to come. They'd have to accept. I think the junior scenario. Because I think that in certain sports, you can't predict. I mean, you don't know how an eighth grader is going to develop biologically. And so it ends up being much more of sort of roster roulette. And I think that's what Anson Dorrance was alluding to, that everyone is sort of grabbing at 13 and 14-year-olds and keeping their fingers crossed that they're going to continue to develop. And you don't really know what you're recruiting until they show up. Or they're just – you're stuck with them because – by the time they are juniors and seniors, everyone is committed. So the ability for a school 
that is operating genuinely with the best interests of a student in mind, and this is probably in the non-revenue sports, you can't sway them to the quality of what you're offering because they were committed in much earlier in, in this process. But the, uh, Kathy also asked, is there a way to get off of the college sports ride generally and sort of abstain from this? And yeah, there is. And the answer to that is you have to be willing not to chase the best program or the, the most successful one. And you have to sort of set different kinds of goals for your kids. And if that means, hey, maybe you should play Division Three, even if you're sort of an elite level type player, because realistically, you're not going to be on the national team in this particular sport or go to the Olympics, and you might have a healthier college experience doing that, then maybe that's what you should be focusing on. All right. Back to the West Coast for our next question. Hey, guys, this is Brian Satlitz from Shoreline, Washington. Uh, first time, long time here. Recently, I mean, within this last year, I, I had this uh, bit of pedantry that I, I hear a lot in sports talk. It's anytime a uh, uh, talking head kind of brings up uh, a collegiate athlete and refers to them as a kid, it started to really kind of bother me. In particular, with like Jameis Winston, it, you know, it, we, we refer to him as a college kid or a young guy. Or when it when it comes to you know possibly handling his own finances or getting paid as a as an athlete, but as if it was just just a twenty year old guy who stole crab legs from a store, well, that's that's an adult. It kind of bothers me, and I was wondering what your thoughts and opinions were on that. Love the show. I'll, I'll hang up and listen. Um, I think it's right to call them kids because they're twenty years younger than me, and that is the cutting off point, at least 20 years younger than me. Even Chris Wenke, maybe, nah, not quite Wenke when he was playing. But maybe we should call the thief a kid. And anyway, why are we calling someone who accomplishes something on the football field and the comparison is someone who steals something off a shelf? I mean, obviously they are adults in the eyes of the world, but the announcers saying kids, I think maybe is a good uh, tonic to all the vitriol these guys get by fans in the stands, including, you know, ruddy-faced loudmouths at Texas Tech, all the abuse they get on internet boards. I'm fine with saying let's remember their kids. Except that we want to infantilize them or at least make them seem like children so that we can feel good about the fact that we don't compensate them in any way for what they're doing athletically. They're performing like adults and they are generating revenue like adults. So maybe the language should reflect that, too. Is it condescending, I guess, is the is the question to refer to them as children when, in fact, they are doing adult jobs? Yeah, I mean, I think you've kind of identified the two different ways to think about it. First way is, should they be subject to the same criticism as professional athletes, people who are paid to do this work? And second, is it a way to exculpate ourselves for not paying them and treating them as adults? They are kind of in this like purgatory state. So it makes sense that there would be a confusion here. I think when announcers talk about them as kids it's, I guess, doing a little of both. I'm just trying to like work, work this out in my head right now. And I think it de obviously depends on how important the game is and how high revenue the sport is. Um, you know, when Adam Morrison cried on the court um, when Gonzaga lost in an NCAA tournament game, he was not really given a pass for it because he was a college student. It was talked about like, you know, an adult man who had just lost an incredibly 
important game that very many people were watching on television and had gambled on and was on SportsCenter, like that person had not been manly and was in tears. So I think if it's somebody who's like really famous, who has gotten a lot of attention, who's seen more as an athlete than a student and that dichotomy, then I think they're not, you know, given any kind of like allowance and then just calling them kid is condescending. Did I just work that out in my head? Did I, did I do a good job there? Hopefully. But, you know, in 1943, we would say, oh, he's a Yale man. But today we would say he's a college kid. Are you going to hire that guy? He's just a college kid. <laughs> so you and feel so like guys, language just evolves. It doesn't well, I mean think that the, I think our definition of adult has changed very much. And I think that a 22-year-old... We're all still living with our parents, I would say. Right. I'm recording this from my parents' basement right now. I can't believe they didn't make you blink and wink more. <laughs> Didn't teach me any foreign languages when I was a kid. Didn't teach me any musical instruments. They did not force my eyelid closed. It's like the opposite of uh, Clockwork Orange. Today, you you made a couple good plays in the hole, and they figured that was good. He's our starter. (laughs) Today, you would have gotten some special classes in winking. You would have found a tutor. Should we go to New Zealand, Stefan? Sure. Our first... Taking the podcast on the road. Our first call outside America. Hello, New Zealand. I have to shout. To get to New Zealand. Hello, New Zealand. Hello, my name is Heather. I currently live in New Zealand. I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, because rugby is the main sport here, something my mother always told me growing up was that rugby players don't get hurt as much as football players, American football players, because they don't wear helmets. And so they know not to smash their head into someone because it's going to hurt. I wondered if you guys knew if there's any truth to that. And I know they have concussion problems in rugby, too. I don't know if it's as bad as American football. But I also wondered if you thought that that would be an improvement in American football. If they didn't wear as much protective equipment, maybe they wouldn't smash themselves into each other quite so hard. Thanks. Bye. I don't know that we know whether this is true or not. I mean, we know that rugby and soccer, for that matter have concussion issues as well, just as American football does. And there has, you know, there's been plenty of speculation. If you go online, you can see calls for improving American football by maybe taking the helmet literally out of the game, putting leather helmets on players again. I think that's a logical solution to this problem. Leather, let's go back to leather. Rugby does not have a lack of concussions. The sport is absolutely concerned, but there does seem in rugby to be less willingness to, among athletes, to find an answer, to get answers to how dangerous the sport actually is and whether they are at risk as well. Some researchers at Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand had hoped to uh, sign up 600 former athletes from 35 to 55 from several sports, uh, rugby, cricket, field hockey, to study and compare the rates of concussion. And they've actually had to postpone the study and the research because they haven't been able to get enough former athletes to sign up. There seems to be a a general reluctance to acknowledge some of the problems in rugby compared to a more, I think, openness, at least in the last two or three years, to take a look at American football. Yeah, Google rugby deaths and you'll get a lot. I don't know if it's more or less than football, but I do know that it's a big problem And in some ways, they're going through what the football fans and the football 
leagues in America have gone through. Denial, gradual acceptance, trying to mm-hmm. get doctors involved. It is in no way something to hold up as the safer alternative. It's, it's not safe enough to be called the safer alternative. Do you guys think it's fair to think about it as a choice between short-term catastrophe? Because if you're not wearing a helmet and you have a... Random collision. Right. You're more likely, I think, probably to die. But in football, if you do have a helmet, a very you know, strong protective shell, which allows you to bash all day long and then the next day... Yeah, protect you against a skull fracture. It's you know, guarding against catastrophic immediate injury, but perhaps creating problems that don't surface until after the game is over down the road. Is that a fair characterization of the that, yeah, the Oh, yeah, there? fair. I didn't know that the word characterization would be after fair, but that's exactly, I think that's exactly what it is. I'm that's not sure, exactly but I'm, I'm not sure we know. Directly. I'm not sure we know. You know, the, I mean, I think we can posit that there are more subconcussive blows in football because of the nature of the game and the equipment. But, you know, there are a lot of concussions in rugby that occur in scrums. And there are full-on, full-speed collisions in rugby as well. I mean, we hear a lot about trying to reform football tackling techniques by applying rugby techniques. There was a flurry of stories just a few weeks ago about the University of New Hampshire taking off their helmets during practice and tackling and hitting without helmets on to sort of get used to the idea of leading with your shoulder. I didn't know about that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yes. The reason why it's not a fair characterization is that rugby also has the smaller subconcussive problems. Sure. We didn't really think about this. This is really my fault. You kind of want to end the show, end the year on a really happy, positive note. And rugby concussions is not? That's our last call. So here's what I'm thinking. Mike, tell us a little bit more about that garlic bread. No, I'll tell you about a play I didn't even mention. You ready for this one? More childhood memories, good. yeah. This is pretty good. So <laughs> in my in my town, were you just holding this in reserve in case in case third? I was like, Mike, I want to hear more of your, about your childhood about your sports single memories. greatest achievements. Well, squirrel. when you said hitting the home run, I re- I had a memory of a memory. So in my town, growing up, there was the structure of little league was: if you were in third grade, you were in single A; if you were in fourth grade, you were in double A; if you were in fifth grade, you were in triple A. So far so good. The grades just comported with the level of baseball. Then there was majors. And because I was born, I was a December birthday and old for my grade. I got one shot to getting called up in majors with the kids who were in a grade higher than me. And I didn't think I'd make majors. And I didn't. I was caught and that was fine. But then the next year when I was with my age cohort, it was very unusual to get cut from majors. But as you're hearing, you could get cut. They had a system where you could cut. Since there was a AAA, I guess they made it so that you could cut a kid who wanted to be a major. We're talking about a fifth or a sixth grade kid. And I was that kid. And I was dread. This was around, you know, 1983. And small ball St. Louis Cardinals baseball was in vogue. <laughs> and the guy who, ha- who ran the majors team that drafted me just wanted a bunch of rabbits. He- stealing was allowed. He figured this would be the way to do it. So he drafted Whitey a bunch ball. of fast kids. Exactly. Why he drafted me is absurd. I was the Steve <laughs> Balboni of the sixth grade. I was bigger than everyone. Um, totally bald. No, that part's not true. Droopy mustache. But I was a power-hitting beer league slugger of a sixth grader. The beer part is true. It makes no sense that he drafted me. We think that he did it just to screw another coach who was going to draft me, who I had played with his son all throughout. Richie Napolitano was t- 
told this guy, Goldman, that he was going to draft me, and Goldman just plucked me. He's like, oh, Napolitano wants him. He's a good coach. So they plucked me out. All right. This so is going to take, take a positive spin at or some point. Or a dark turn. I can't tell which way this is going to go. Is there, is there going to be a murder for hire at some point in this story? <laughs> so here I am. I'm on this team. And what's the name of the day team? Day one of practice. I don't know what the name of the team was. It wasn't Dunkin' Donuts. Maybe it was, maybe it was Dunkin'. Maybe it's, it wasn't D's Nursery. That's the team I wound up playing for. All right. Anyway, we'll get to the name of the team. Yeah, we had the great names. We didn't go with the Cubs and the, uh, maybe it was California Collision, which was the place of an auto repair. That was the only one that actually sounded like it could be a real name. Chico's Belmont. Yeah, yeah, at best. So, first day of practice, fielding practice, fine. I'm average. Second day of practice, they time us running around the bases. Third day of practice, they time us running around the bases. At no point do I get to pick up a bat. Fourth day of practice, I'm cut. I'm cut before I ever take batting practice. I get sent down to the majors. Uh, sorry, AAA. I'm bigger than everyone. Who's my AAA coach? It's Richie Napolitano, who was going to take me. He had an older son and a younger son. I was on his younger son's team, so I'm the oldest kid in the team. And in fact, the uniforms don't fit me, so I have to buy my own black sweatpants. They're like, we understand if Mike doesn't want to play, he's older than everyone. But I like baseball, so I wanted to play. So first game, I come up against the son of this guy, Goldman. Goldman. All right, <laughs> Goldman's son is on the mound. I'm batting. And we are playing in a park where they have fences, but no one that I know of has ever reached the fences. And again, wasn't that I was so great. I am a year older than everyone and much bigger than everyone. So big, I don't fit in the standard issue Little League pants. <laughs> I take the kid yard. I go around. I, I go around the bases and I just lock eyes with this guy Goldman. And you know what it tells me? It tells me that fantasy sports are necessary because this predated fantasy sports. And if those guys could have played out there, we cut this guy. We draft this guy's scenario with real players, they would have let us sixth graders out of it. Goldman sucks. That's all I Goldman, have to say. This Goldman guy. That was a great way to end uh, 2014. It's been a good <laughs> year. I feel like we really got in some good digs on Goldman this year that we had gone in in 2013. Uh, we learned more about Mike's sixth grade mustache. And we'll be back in 2015 with more tales of Little League splendor and dismay uh we'd love your feedback and what we talked about today you can email us at hangup at slate.com we'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup subscribe to the podcast in itunes you can find us at itunes.com slash late podcast and we would appreciate a comment and a rating especially if you enjoy the show become a fan of hang up and listen on facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen our intern is chris laskowski our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.